We are in a three-week series about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm still shocked that this topic can fill a room. Uh, we set a record last week for the number of people in this room ever for Kerygma, uh, which is wonderful. Just a real quick word about uh, where we've been. Dead Sea Scrolls discovered starting in 1947 and over about a 10-year period. Uh, most of them discovered 11 caves around the Qumran area, but others discovered up and down the Dead Sea. Uh, nearly 1,000 documents. The greatest manuscript discovery of all time, and many would argue the greatest archaeological find of all time. It opened a world to us. It fundamentally changed the way we understood Second Temple Judaism. It changed the way we understood Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the early Christian community, because for the first time we really understood the world that these events took place in. So last week we kind of looked at that uh, in, in big picture. There are several hundred Bible scrolls, which means we have copies of books of the Bible 1,200 years older than anything we had before. Uh, we have commentaries, peshers, which include both the text of the book and a commentary about it as, as people at that day and time were reflecting on it. We have what are called the secular scrolls, scrolls by the Qumran community about themselves like the, uh, the war scroll or the temple scroll or stuff like that. So it's a wealth of information. Um, what we want to do today is look a little bit about some of the big picture stuff that we've learned. Now, the problem with this is you can get into tens of thousands of things we've actually learned. Uh, of course, the big picture is it, it's just fundamentally changed our whole understanding. But I want to spend most of our time today on the fact that I did not know this until fairly recently. The Dead Sea Scrolls have res resulted in changes in our Bible. How many of y'all did not know that? Yeah, I did not know that until fairly recently. Uh, first question in my mind was, change the Bible? You can do that? Well, yes, you can. If you have an NRSV Bible, it has over 400 changes that relate directly back to the Dead Sea Scrolls because we now have much better manuscript evidence for understanding what the original wording is. And as we'll see here in a few moments, it cleared up a lot of things we just weren't quite sure about. Uh, where we're going to end up at the end of the day is I want to show you how it's actually changed the text of the New Testament. And that comes as a shock. There are no New Testament scrolls. So how did it result in changing the text of the New Testament? And in fact, the way we understand the Apostle Paul and what he meant by the word salvation, which is no mean deal. So uh, we know that they've taught us a lot about Judaism and Christianity. Have they taught us anything about Jesus directly? There was a Father O'Flanahan several years ago who uh, in one of the caves, they did find little, little Greek fragments. So that raised the interesting possibility. Could they be Greek fragments of the New Testament? Could we, in fact, have, because this, the uh, community was destroyed. What year was it destroyed, remember? Right, 70, 60, war broke out in 66, 67, 68, somewhere in there. Jesus died when? 30. Apostle Paul wrote his letters when? Late, you know, 50s. Maybe as early as 49, but in the 50s. Gospel Mark was written when? 65, 70, somewhere in there. So by the time the Dead Sea Scroll community had been destroyed, Paul had already written all of his letters, and the, at least the Gospel of Mark had been written. So is it possible in theory that there could be some Christian documents? Absolutely. And so he got a good PhD dissertation out of that. The problem was is that there's not another scholar in the world that agreed with him. 
the fragments were so small that they did, in fact, fit what he said they fit. They also fit the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, <laughs> various Greek plays, diaries, and all kinds of stuff. And you can actually Google it and see the little pictures. So the consensus is not a single reference to Jesus, Paul, John the Baptist, or anything Christian. There's no. These are all Jewish documents. Uh, but there is something we need to know. What it does do is it opens up the world of Jesus, the world of Paul. Paul, Jesus and Paul and the early disciples and the early Christians were second temple Jews. Okay? Later we begin to get through Paul's ministry and others, we begin to get non-Jews, Gentiles converted. But we started with a bunch of Jews who lived in the thought world and the religious world, the social world of second temple Judaism. So to be able to understand Second Temple Judaism better means that you all of a sudden understand Jesus better. I want to look at some examples of that. So culturally, historically, and religiously. There were things that simply did not make sense, and scholars had been scratching their heads for centuries going, what in the heck is that about? And all of a sudden, we know one. Let me give you an example. Matthew 12, 11. Uh, one of the stories in the life of Jesus. This is one of the many disputes of the Sabbath, Okay. Jesus said to them, suppose one of you has only one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? You've seen that passage before? Okay. Now, the whole passage is predicated on this. Jesus is saying to them, even though the law says that to do that would violate the Sabbath, if it was your sheep, you're getting it out of the ditch, right? Because it's your sheep and it's very, very valuable. So the whole argument is predicated that there must be some Jewish law that says on the Sabbath you cannot rescue your sheep. Here's the problem. No such law existed. It is not in the Old Testament. It is not in the Mishnah. It's not in the Talmud. Nobody knew in the ancient world of a single reference where it was prohibited from saving your animal. That is until they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we now have it. Uh, so the problem was, where was this coming from? What was Jesus reacting to? He seems to be reacting to a law. Damascus document, 645. Let no man help a beast to give birth on the Sabbath day. Now, how are you going to prevent that? <laughs> I'm not sure. Here's the one, though. And if it fall into a cistern or into a pit, let it not be lifted out on the Sabbath. So for the first time, we actually have a document that gives a Jewish law from that day and time. This is what Jesus was reacting to. He was saying, I don't care what the law says, interpretation of Torah. If it's your animal, you're going to let it die? Because in the ancient world, where was, your, where was your wealth and your property? It was in your animals. There's no way you're letting that thing in there. So it makes sense. Big picture. What we've done is we, we returned Jesus, Paul, the early church to the world that they came out of and in the original context it makes much more sense. Here's the big picture theory. The Dead Sea Scrolls open up a world and help us to understand Second uh, Temple Judaism or First Century Judaism. Once we understand that, then Jesus makes more sense. Paul makes more sense. The book of Acts makes more sense. The early Christian community makes more sense. So that's the theory behind that. Uh, we're going to end today with one of the most remarkable examples of this, how the Dead Sea Scrolls literally changed the New Testament, not because we found a, a manuscript that says da-da-da, but because once we understand the world of the Apostle Paul, 
we now know the Apostle Paul could not have said what Martin Luther thought he said. Okay? And in fact, he would have said something very, very different. We now know that for a fact. We'll look at that then. A few examples of some contact between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the New Testament before we look at the, man, uh, the New Testament. Jesus very clearly understood his own ministry in light of the book of Isaiah and a particular passage. You know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captive, sight to the blind, resurrection to the dead. Remember that famous passage? Well, it turns out the Dead Sea community was, was, was expecting a Messiah who would be anointed by God's spirit and who would do all of those things. Uh, so in Luke chapter 4, very famous passage, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus begins his ministry by going to his hometown of Nazareth. He's been baptized down south uh, near Perea on, the, dead, on, the, the, sea of, on the, the Jordan River there. Now he returns back to, to the north to start his ministry. He goes to the synagogue. He rolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah out, finds a place, either meaning that this is like a lectionary, that a certain passage is read a certain day, in which case he's apparently chosen this day on purpose, or if he had the freedom to choose, he deliberately chose this passage. And he uh, finds that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. All those things that we're familiar with, rolls it up, sets down, and says, by the way, today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Later, when John the Baptist is sitting in prison, about to be executed, and he sends his <coughs> disciples back to Jesus and says, by the way, are you the really the one that we were waiting for, or should we wait for another? You have some second thoughts there, waiting for the block to come down, okay? And Jesus says to him, go tell, go tell John what you see and hear. The sight received blind, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. So this is, is Jesus' Magna Carta. This is his, his statement of principle about who he understands to be. Here's the Messianic Apocalypse in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a book that talks about the Messiah from Second Temple Judaism. The heavens and the earth will listen to his Messiah, and none therein will stray from the commandments of the Holy Ones. Uh, over, his, over the poor, his spirit will hover. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Obviously an Isaiah reference. And will renew the faithful with his power. He will glorify the pious on the throne of the eternal kingdom. The pious being language this community used a lot. Here it comes. He will liberate the captives, restore sight to the blind, straighten the bent. He will heal the wounded, revive the dead. It was said there's not a single known reference in Judaism to the Messiah raising the dead. None, zip, zero, nada, until the Dead Sea Scrolls. So here we have a community understanding that one of the things the Messiah would do is exactly what Christians have understood, bring good news to the poor. This is the passage from Luke where John the Baptist sends a question over to, to, uh, to Jesus saying, are you really the one? And look what the Messianic Apocalypse says. He will heal the wounded, resurrect the dead, proclaim God to the poor. So very, very, very similar. Beatitudes. Beatitudes are a teaching form. They come to us from the wisdom tradition. Um, in the New Testament, we have them collected, but generally they were said one here, one there. We have about 12 of them from Jesus. Turns out that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we also have Beatitudes, some of them strikingly similar. You can't read that except in your handout, but those are the ones we're familiar with. Then if you look at, by the way, 4Q, remember the nomenclature? 4 means what? From where? Qumran. 
And what do we remember about the fourth cave? Got most of the stuff, and they're all fragments. Okay, so it's broken up. And here we have, blessed are the pure in heart, references to um, some very, very similar kinds of language, and, and sometimes it's the exact opposite. Uh, sometimes it gets spooky, because in the book of Acts and in the Gospel of Matthew, we have portrayed a way of resolving conflict. You remember the famous, there are some churches, by the way, that literally try to do this, uh, from Matthew here. You know, if you've got, a, if you've got a, an, an issue with your brother or sister, what do you do first? You go to them, and you try to work it out. If that doesn't work, grab one or two others, go with them, try to work it out. And what you get this, this fourfold process, very detailed, very specific. And the rule of the community, we know that the Qumran community followed the exact four same steps. Now, that does not mean one borrowed from the other or you know, copied from the other. What it means is, is that both communities, the early Christian community, the Qumran community are both operating from the same thought world. They're coming out of the same, same kind of environment. They're one of the real uh, neat things that's coming out of K4, and you can see that's how fragmented it is there, is what are called the messianic fragments. Uh, we wish this one would have been um, total. I mean, we're, it, it, it is a crime that we've lost some of it because it has some of the most remarkable things in it, okay? That the executed Messiah. It was said uh, that there was no understanding within the Judaism that the Messiah would be executed. You have the suffering servant, and you have the Messiah, but nowhere in Judaism was it ever connected together. Only, in, only the Christians make that connection. Well, not so. The staff shall rise from the root of Jesse. Sound familiar? Gospel of Matthew. And the planting of his roots will bear fruit, the branch of David. They will enter into judgment, and they will put to death the leader of the community, the branch of David, from his wounded be slain. There you have it, a Messiah figure who is put to death. The Abraham Apocalypse, this is another one of those documents. He shall be hail the Son of God, and they shall call him Son of the Most High. It reads like it's right out of the New Testament. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all its ways shall be the truth. He shall judge the earth in righteousness, and everyone shall have peace. You could stick that right in the New Testament, and it would fit perfectly. The sword shall disappear from the earth, and every nation will submit to him. Messianic Apocalypse, again, K4. His holy Messiah will not be slow in coming. When he comes, he shall heal the wounded, resurrect the dead, proclaim good tidings to the poor. This shows up over and over, and he will shepherd them. Interesting. We even have a messianic banquet in which the Messiah will preside over something that looks a lot like the Last Supper. Blessing the cup. Blessing the bread. So this is not a Christian community. This is the thought world of Second Temple Judaism. Again, there are thousands of little examples, but the big thing is no smoking gun, no quotations from Jesus, not another letter from Paul, nothing that mentions anything specifically Christian, but again, the world that we like. If you get into any good commentary today about the ministry of Jesus or letters of Paul or anything in the New Testament, if they're worth their soap, they're going to be making references to the Dead Sea Scrolls to help you understand what that came from, what that's about. So, but this is the one we want to spend our time on because this is fascinating. As a result of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Bible you have is not the Bible your grandparents had.
No huge sweeping, no new books, no new chapters, but in fact, words have changed. Verses have been added and entire paragraphs have been added. We want to see one of each. So these are all documented in the NRSV. Any of y'all use the NRSV? Okay. Many of these are also in the NIV, which is the other one you use. So an example of changing a word, not just any word, an important word, a theological word. We have instances where from the ancient manuscripts, we simply did not know what was the original reading. What is the original version of that text? For example, Psalm 22, 16 is a very important one. Uh, this, this, this verse comes to us in two forms. It comes to us in the Hebrew Masoretic text, which is what the Jewish uh, Bible is based on. And, and for the most part, most Christian Old Testaments are based on this. Now, the Masoretes lived um, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth centuries. They finalized the Hebrew text, but based on earlier deals, but it, it's basically uh, A.D. The Greek text, the Septuagint, was actually translated from Hebrew into Greek. This is the Old Testament, 3rd century B.C. So even though it's not Hebrew, it's universally acknowledged that in many places the Greek Septuagint actually contains the older version, the older text. So in your Bible, there'll be footnotes that say they follow this or they follow that. So it's the, those are our two sources. If you want to know what your Old Testament is based on, it's going to be the Masoretic text based on either the Aleppo text or the Leningrad Codex, or it's going to be the Septuagint. That's your range. Now, what happens when they don't agree? Okay. The Masoretic text, that verse says, like a lion are my hands and my feet. Now, I've always wondered what that would look like. Grr, you know, my hands are like a lion or whatever. The Greek, which we're more familiar with, which most Christian Bibles follow, says they pierced my hands and my feet. Does that remind you of something? In the New Testament, that verse is seen as a prophecy fulfilled in what? The crucifixion of Jesus. So this is a theologically freighted, a theologically loaded verse. So, uh, and it varies. So you got the Jewish Bible saying like a line. You've got the Greek saying pierced. Um, now, where it really gets interesting is if you write like a line and pierced in Hebrew, you see the difference? You read, by the way, reverse. Uh, see the, the yod there? And the one that comes down a little bit? That's it. That's the difference. How far down does that puppy gun? And, and again, it's going to be handwritten, so they're all going to look different. So what it says right up front is it could have been either one. I mean, it would be easy for one to mistake for the other or the other to mistake for the one. Six of one, half does another, so, so we're not sure. Uh, what is the original? It's not insignificant. Again, uh, Christians see this as a prophecy about Jesus. And if you look at Bibles, it breaks down right along religious lines. All Jewish Bibles will say what? <coughs> yeah. Are there some theological reasons for not saying pierced? You bet there are. All Christian Bibles say, until recently, until the Dead Sea Scrolls, all Christian Bibles said pierced. Are there theological reasons for saying pierced? So that raises the question, you know, we, we, there's an agenda here. Do we know what the original was? Okay. Um, did Christians change the, the text? Well, they couldn't have because when was the Septuagint translated? Third century B.C. 
Jesus wasn't there yet. So we have a third century B.C. Greek verse of this that says Pierce. So something else is going on. Now we say appears that the Septuagint may have made this change uh, because the, that term in Hebrew that gets translated into the Greek term, which means pierced, uh, we didn't actually have a Hebrew document that had that word. So it was that conjecture, you know, because the two words are so close, we think they may have misunderstood and miscopied, but we had no documentary evidence until the Dead Sea Scrolls, and all of a sudden we did. Septuagints pierced, guess, no direct evidence, and here's the manuscript, by the way. The scrolls have now provided us a third alternative and a fourth alternative, <laughs> just to confuse things, okay, uh, that they're much more ancient. 4QPS, K4, Qumran, the Psalms. By the way, um, there's also a Psalms that's very big. It has karu, a third form of the word. And guess what karu means? Pierced. No, no, excuse me, it means shriveled. Uh, it actually it comes from the word short. And think about it, when your hands shrivel up, what becomes, stands out more? Your bones. And do you remember what that text of Psalms says? My hands are like a lion. I can see my bones sticking out. Aha, that one actually makes sense. So many scholars say they, th they think it's actually this. On the basis of that, and how that looks in, the, in terms of the paragraph, the NRSV changed like a line and pierced to shriveled. And they have a good argument for it. So the old text, dogs around me, the company you do is encircle me like a line in my hands and feet. The new translation, dogs around me, Company of evildoers and circumstances. My hands and feet are shriveled. I can count on my bones. Makes total sense. And so your NRSV, in fact, has that. Okay, 2005. Another possibility emerges. You know that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were released in two groups in the 1940s and 50s. A few were released, but not until the 1990s, with a vast uh, group released. And the finds keep continuing. It turns out there's another cave, not at Qumran, just a little bit down the road that revealed something else. It's called the Nahal Hever. Uh, it's fragment seven, and it has Ka'aru. Do you remember from the previous discussion what Ka'aru was? Pierced. We have in Hebrew, second century B.C., pierced, which is exactly what we have in the Septuagint. So we know the term pierced, in fact, is a pre-Christian term used within the Jewish community. Um, and it's that missing piece that was not there. By the way, what that probably means is the next time the NRSV is translated again, what are they going to go with? Shriveled, maybe. It's going to be, be a big argument because shriveled makes sense. And we have a word for it, but we have another word for it, pierced. Right now, in our NRSV is the only Bible that has shriveled. And it's going to be a big argument to get them away from it. Could we add a verse to the Bible? Okay. Uh, yes, we could. For example, here's Psalm 145. By the way, this is the Psalm scroll. 
See what good condition it's in? We can read, I mean, there's not a lot missing there. Okay, this is the one we're dealing with. Okay, we know that Psalm, uh, Psalm 145 uh, is an acrostic psalm. What's an acrostic psalm? Well, one of the things we have many times in the Old Testament is a psalm where every verse starts with the next letter of the alphabet. The first verse would start with A. Next verse would start with B, C, D, or if you're in Hebrew, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, on down. So if you're reading along A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, N, O, P, Q, R, S, what do you know? Where did the M go? And there's something missing. And we know from Psalm, uh, this Psalm, we know exactly in there, and as a matter of fact, some Bible translations will put after that upper part, they put dot, 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 footnote, something's missing. You know, uh, okay. Now we discover 11Q, PSA. Well, you remember from last week, what are the two caves where the, where the scrolls were virtually intact? Cave 1 and Cave 11. So we have a virtually intact scroll of Psalms, and guess what? In the missing place, starting with M, we have the Lord is faithful in all his works and gracious in all his deeds. So what did the NRSV do? Put it in there. This is a second century B.C. manuscript. It fits. It's there. So that's been added. Okay. How about adding an entire paragraph? Okay. One real uh, interesting version of this. Uh, between Samuel 10 and Samuel 12, there's been this puzzle. Get you, get to loosen up your mouth before you say all this stuff. Now, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gabeah, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nabash, Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition. I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and thus I will make it all a reproach to Israel. What the heck is that about? And for hundreds of years, people go, what's this eye-gouging stuff, you know? Well, turns out, uh, didn't make any sense. It's not clear in the Masoretic text. But and when we look at 4Q Sam, again, this is one of the fragments from K4. Uh, it just so happens that this part of the text is particularly well-preserved. And they, in fact, insert an entire paragraph. So they, uh, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. He wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people back to their homes. Saul also went to his home at Gebeah, and with him went warriors whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? They despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Now Mahash, this is the new part, king of the Ammonites, who had, who had been grievously oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites, he would gouge out the right eye of each of them and would not grant Israel a deliverer. No one was left in the Israelites across the Jordan whose right eye Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites and had entered this area. About a month later, Nahash the Ammonite, in other words, you gouged our eyes out. I'll make a treaty with you if I can gouge your eyes out. Makes total sense. 
maybe not a good ethical argument, but, you know, <laughs> makes sense. Eye for an eye, literally. Okay. Uh, now, here's the question. Can you change the Bible just based on the manuscript somewhere? Well, it's not quite that simple. Turns out that the Samuel scroll is not the only witness. For example, J Josephus, first century Jewish writer, and one of his writings says in the Antiquities, for he put out the right eyes of those that either delivered themselves to him upon terms. In other words, he knew the story. The piece that was missing from our Bible, he knew about it. It also turns out that some, not all, but some versions of the Septuagint also knew the story. So we have a second century B.C. manuscript that includes it. Josephus knew it. It's in the Septuagint. Was it original? What would be your guess? The editors of the NRSV said yes, and so they put there. This is probably what's called I skip. I thought you might want uh, it, to, it, it's a funny term, but it's a deal. For example, if you're copying a manuscript to another one, it, you're, you're looking back and forth and back and forth and copying. If you get two lines that look real similar, it's real easy to mistake and skip. So you've got, and he kept silent, and about a month later, those don't look remotely alike. Well, not in English, but in Hebrew, the difference is one letter. Okay, so very easy to look for, and they think that that's what's going on. Uh, so on the basis of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, uh, the Septuagint, the NRSV, add this back in. So this is the corker. How could the Dead Sea Scrolls result in changing the New Testament? And that, that, that'll set me up heels. No New Testament documents were found. So we can't say we're going to change, which is what we're going to say, we're going to change what Paul said in Galatians, and we're going to change what Paul said in Philippians because of something we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That didn't make sense, but, but it does in a way. The Dead Sea Scrolls have helped us to understand the culture the language, the concept. So, uh, Paul's writing in Greek, but what culture was Paul raised in? Second Temple Judaism. So, even as he writes in Greek, he's going to be expressing his thought in that world that Dead Sea Scrolls led us into. Um, they give us meaning. So, for example, Paul's writing in Greek. Um, he is in the thought world of Second Temple Judaism, even though he's writing in Greek. He's writing primarily originally to Jews. Um, so understanding that original words and concepts would help us to correct misconceptions that you and important ones. The most striking example comes to us in Paul's theology from two verses or two books that where Paul lays out his understanding of salvation. So this is not a minor point, okay? This affects how you understand what Paul taught about what it means, means to be saved. Uh, according to the traditional translation we are saved by faith in christ you familiar with that we all been taught that okay that goes back 500 years to luther now the greek is pistis or piestus christu you know uh faith christ this becomes the battle cry of the reformation sola gratia you know, by grace alone sola fide by by faith alone and we get this whole dichotomy of grace and works which luther is really into but Luther's understanding is that's what Paul's into. So Paul comes to us today through the filter of Martin Luther. 
because Martin Luther is the one who took the Latin Vulgate, went back to the original Greek, translated into German, and brought for the first time a modern, contemporary translation of what was Paul saying, and that it made it, made it available to us. Uh, this led to that famous dichotomy between faith and works, and we, you know, that, in other words, Luther read Paul through a Lutheran filter. And what Luther says, he saw Paul in agreement with him. He just looked, he just read Paul and said, oh, Paul's a Lutheran. Paul agrees with me, you know. And, and he began to do it, and it, it worked into his translation. Uh, and that has made the, the predominant understanding for 500 years. Now, Luther's understanding is based on two texts. We're going to look at these. Galatians 2.16. A person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Every English translation until about four years ago had this translation, okay? And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ so that we might be justified <coughs> by faith in Christ. Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So the, the Lutheran understanding that we had for five centuries is that we're, we're saved by faith in Christ. And that has become the understanding that's come down to us. Now, thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now know that no Jew in the ancient world would have thought that. No Jew would have thought that, much less Paul. Um, Paul would have never separated faith into works. We now know that, that this whole idea, that the, the old stereotype was, here's the difference between Christianity and faith. Jews thought they had to earn their way to God through works. Have you heard that? We now know there's not one shred of evidence for that in the ancient world. Not one. Not one writing, not one manuscript, not one quote. Jews always universally understood they come to God through grace. What was the act of grace? Out of Egypt. First God delivers you, then what does God do? Gives you the law. Grace precedes law. That's Jewish and that's Christian. Uh, faith and action or faith and works for any Jew in the ancient world, Paul among them, and once we understand this, Paul makes a lot more sense, the overarching term would have not been faith, but faithfulness, sometimes translated obedience. If you have faithfulness, then faith and works are not separate. They're, in fact, combined. And we know that that was the Jewish understanding. We know that Luther's understanding also does not fit Paul. Uh, and we know that Luther's translation of the Greek faith in Christ is a mistranslation. It is not what Paul would have used to admit. Now, here's the argument. This is, if you just want a big fancy term for this, this is the Pistius Christu controversy. Okay? <laughs> just whip out of that and somebody say. Okay? The Greek says faith Christ. There's no preposition not there it's implied okay you have to add it so what did luther do luther read it as in christ it could also be what of christ equal options faith in christ or faith of christ what is the faith of christ faithfulness um, and in fact that's the way most people who study this say it works today uh, it makes more sense also in terms of paul's theology 
most scholars would say today is is that we think that Paul was saying that we are actually saved not by faith in Christ, but by Christ's faithfulness to God and our faith in that. It's a subtle difference, but it's a big difference. Okay, uh, This would also seem to fit the actual writings and stuff. For example, do you remember this passage from Philippians? Jesus Christ, although he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What is that? That is Christ's faithfulness. Obedient even unto death. It's interesting that one of the two passages comes from the same area. It's this faithfulness that saves us, the faithfulness of Christ. Now, 2005. I was surprised uh, last week at the funeral to see our pastor, uh, Paul Rasmussen. He's going into the pulpit, and I'm looking at his Bible. It is an NET Bible. It's the most recent translation. It was originally created to be online. It has 300 and something of the world's greatest biblical scholars behind it. Jewish, Catholic, Protestant. It's, it's a... It has its own web page. You can go out there and look it up and all kinds of resources and stuff. The 2005 NET Bible that you can now buy through Logos in paper form uh, changes the wording of Galatians and Philippians to reflect the understanding that comes to us out of the Dead Sea Scrolls of what Judaism is. Um, that's huge. Here is Galatians 2 according to the NET Bible. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul's proud of his Jewish heritage. Yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ. Philippians 3. For Christ Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not because of my own righteousness, you may even say my own faith, delivered from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. That's huge. That is a tectonic shift in our understanding of what Paul was saying and what I'm hearing behind the scenes is is that as new Bibles come out this is the contemporary understanding as best we can when it comes up to uh, my aim is to know him to experience the power of his resurrection to share in his sufferings and to be like him in death now all this language fits the faithfulness Christ was faithful unto death what is my goal Paul saying I want to be faithful like Christ was I want to experience the power of the resurrection. I want to share in his suffering. I want to be like him in his death. I want to be faithful to God as Christ was faithful to God. Now, it is not accurate to say that only because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the New Testament has been changed. However, it is right to say that among the things that have led to this, is the understanding of the world of Paul and the thought world and how he would have been uh, raised. And because of that, we now know that Luther's translation 
is, as honest and sincere as it was at the time, is not the best, most accurate way of understanding what Paul was saying. As a Jew, as a Second Temple Jew, Paul simply would not, could not, have separated faith and works. He would have gone with combination, faithfulness. And he was utterly, totally focused on Christ and Christ's faithfulness. So it all fits together. How many of y'all know Heather? Okay. Miss Heather Reitstoff, who uh, has lived in Israel, among other places, who is, her degree is in the preservation of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, who has actually had her hands on them and helped work on them herself, who now works over at, in Fort Worth for Dallas Theological Seminary. She's in charge of pre pre preserving all of their ancient documents and stuff. Uh, Heather has agreed to come be with us next week. She is the one who has put together the exhibition in Fort Worth. She is the one who's agreed to be our docent, our guide. On the 25th, uh, or on the 18th, I'll talk to her this week about the 25th. I th she probably would be good game for that. But we've asked her if she would come and to, s to talk to us. Uh, here's the story. The storyline is this. The largest assembly of Dead Sea Scroll material ever anywhere, period, is in Fort Worth, including two things that have never been seen in public, period. How would you like the lady who put it together to come talk to us? Well, she'll be here, okay. So next week, Heather will be with us. 